So as senior adults say, I was resting my eyes in that picture, okay? I was not asleep. There was no chance of sleep, uh, but I'm so glad they captured that moment. Thank you, Noah. Um, appreciate that. We'll talk tomorrow. Um, <laughs> this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we are in a series at, the look, at a look at the kingdom, and we are moving quickly through the, the gospel of Matthew, but it's because I want us to see the movement of the kingdom. Um, I want us to see in kind of a, a, a little bit more rapid pace than just really kind of anchoring in and going deep through just small pericopes and units of the text. I want us to see how the kingdom was advancing in kind of rapid succession. Um, as you're finding your, your way there, I want to say thank you to Noah and Brittany. Thank you all for your leadership and your love for our students. And to the students that are in here, I see my dwell shirts around here. I love you guys, and I am so thankful for you. We have incredible students here at First Baptist New Orleans um, who love the Lord. I loved seeing them open their Bibles and really track with the pastor that was leading us. We were studying through Isaiah, and the, the conversations that we had just showed such depth um, real wrestlings that our students are going through, but a real resolve and a real love for the church and, and a desire to be here. And so I am hopeful and I am so excited about the future. So thank you guys and thank you students. I, I love getting to serve with you and look forward to the days ahead. Um, as we continue in God's Word, I want you to hold your place in Matthew chapter 4 and then turn with me over to Psalm 119. And rather than reading um, an extended passage out of Matthew's chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 that we're going to be looking at today, I want you to look at just one verse in, in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And when you find your place there at Psalm 119, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And, and I, I see this as somewhat of a summary verse of everything that we're going to read today, um, that we're going to look at today and, and what I'm hoping that we will see is that we're talking about this new kingdom of Christ, um, this, this dawning of a new day, um, of a new kingdom, a new king, all these things. But it's not new in some sense that the old is just kicked out, that it was really bad and now we have good. But instead, it's the old made new. Because I want you to see that this summary verse that we're going to read today in Psalm 119 was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ would speak these words from the, the, the mountain where he would give the Beatitudes. And so I want you to hear Psalm 119 verse 1 as a summary of all that we will look at today. How happy are those whose way is blameless who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. We want to be happy. We do, Lord. And we admit that we are prone toward running down roads and consuming things that promise happiness but lead to misery. But God, your word says, and it says it in the Old Testament, and Jesus makes clear today in the New, that happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to your instruction. So Lord, please, today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the goodness of your word, as our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we bring glory to your name, our Father, please, would you grace us today to comprehend and then to obey your word that we might know 
the happiness that you have given us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The old way made new. The old truth made new. The old life made new. That's what we're going to look at today as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, is seeing how Jesus has brought in the newness to this kingdom that has always been the people of God, but is now made new by his word. And a new way suggests an old way. And so I want us to begin actually where we left off last week in chapter 3. And I want us to see how the writer of this gospel, Matthew, is connecting some dots. He's helping us to look back at the old as we are pondering and looking forward to the new. And we're going to get into the so what of all this, but it's important for us to see these connections and where they are in the Bible first before we just jump into, well, so then what today? Uh, What does it look like today? How is this helping me today with marriage and parenting and finances and career? The, The so what will come after the what of God's word. And so I want us to look and to see how Matthew is clearly contrasting the old way and the new way. When the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt, they came to the Red Sea and passed through the sea because God had made a way. You see, the old way was pointing to the way that would one day come. This old way of the sea was pointing to the new way of Christ. And Jesus reveals this here in chapter 3 in his baptism. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus is like like the passing through the Red Sea because both were gifts from God. God himself making away. God parted the waters in the Old Testament, and here in Matthew, he parts the heavens and sends his spirit who descends like a dove on Jesus. And like the dove that returned to the ark in Genesis chapter 8, with an olive branch in its mouth, the descending, anointing Holy Spirit signaled to John the Baptist and to all that the flood was over and life had come. Yet Jesus was not baptized in the Red Sea. He was baptized in the Jordan River. The same Jordan River, which God himself had parted, just like the Red Sea, in Joshua chapter 3. So that the people of God could cross over into the promised land. Jesus, get the imagery that Matthew's trying to help us connect. Jesus not only is the way out of slavery to sin, out through the Red Sea, he's also the way into the promised land. He's the, one, he's the way through the Jordan River. This, this Jesus being baptized here is the way. The entire Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. And this imagery is not just someone being creative. 
This was intended. This was God's design. These things that happened historically were to give a signal to what would happen historically in Jesus. Jesus was historically baptized. Jesus was historically anointed with the Holy Spirit who descended like a dove on him. The historical voice of God uttered, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So it's not just allegory. It's not just imagery. It's all real history that points to a real kingdom. And we're only scratching the surface. You keep moving then into chapter 4 and to catch that Old Testament, New Testament, old way, new way imagery, Matthew goes straight into this historical account of what happened to Jesus in the temptation. You see, just as the Israelites entered the wilderness for 40 years, so Christ in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 would endure starvation through fasting 40 days in which he was tempted by Satan. Catch the number, 40 years, 40 days. Wilderness, wilderness. Now what's amazing about the nature of Jesus' temptation is how it parallels the temptation of the Israelites in their wilderness experience. Chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's the understatement of the Bible. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's referring back to the Old Testament. Your Bible might have quotations right there with Jesus's response. It's because it's taking us back to the Old Testament. It's taking us back to a previous wilderness experience. It's taking us back to God's provision of manna for the people of God. And so Jesus is being tempted in this moment to go outside of the will of God, to, to, to be something other than the nature of the Son of God that he is intended and, and sent to be. You keep going down through this passage. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. This is Satan at, at really his finest as far as temptation because he's using scripture to tempt Jesus. I mean, just be aware that Satan knows how to use the Bible against you. That, that, we need to be mindful of that. And you say, well, what does that look like? It looks like false preachers. It looks like false prophets getting up and using the Bible to mislead the people of God. So just be aware that just because it has a Bible verse etched on it, stitched on it, embroidered on it, doesn't mean that that's the context, that that's the application, that that's what that verse is saying to us today. So it's important for us to keep going through this passage. Jesus told him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, ushering back to this, this idea of the people of God and the wandering. And then again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. You see, the people of, of Israel ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, but their wandering was a consequence of sin. 
Yet it was the will of the Father, seen in the leadership of the Spirit, verse 1 of chapter 4, that Jesus would be led into the wilderness to be tempted like those he was to die for. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, in every way as we are, yet without sin. An entire sermon could be preached on the nature of the temptation, on the depth of what it reveals about the nature of the Son of God. But for this sermon, I want to simply note that in these significant ways that Israel, as the, the Son of God, failed to trust God and to walk in faith in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is able to remain faithful to God in the throes of temptation. But we need to remember that to be tempted is not to sin. Let me quickly say that some temptations to sin are a result of foolish decisions. The man who positions himself in New Orleans on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras, hoping not to look lustfully upon a woman, is acting in foolishness. Yet many men and women position themselves to be tempted and sin by being alone on the computer or on their phone or on the TV late at night, knowing that such actions are unwise and foolish. I don't think that any of us would say that the Spirit of God led me to be on YouTube or Twitter at 1 a.m. in the same way that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And the meaning of the word tempt in this context, and in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, means this, to entice to improper behavior. To entice to improper behavior. We are all enticed toward improper behavior, but only Jesus resisted every single time. Which is to say that he experienced the deepest depth of temptation because temptation is strongest when it is most deeply resisted. But keep your eyes on Jesus in this moment. Because an additional temptation that I think that we face today in the church is this. And when I say an additional temptation, I mean an additional enticement towards the wrong behavior. In this moment, when we look at the temptation of Jesus, is to take this historical count of Jesus and just make it a moralistic lesson on fighting temptation. We say, well, oh, Jesus memorized scripture to battle Satan, so I need to memorize more scripture to battle Satan. And we think that that's the main idea of this passage. Well, you want to know who had more scripture memorized in Jesus' day than anybody else on the planet? The Pharisees. The Pharisees had more scripture memorized than anybody else on the planet, and they were the very ones that said, we don't need Jesus. Now, note it, they wanted to be like Jesus. They, they wanted to be like him. They wanted to be able to heal. They wanted to have captivated audience. They, they, they wanted crowds following them. They wanted to be like Christ. They just didn't want Jesus. You see, if every story of Jesus simply provides another way for you and for me to be like Jesus, rather than increasing our desire for Jesus, our awe of Jesus, our appreciation of Jesus, our, our head shaking of just how amazing and great and powerful and faithful and good and loving Jesus is. And we're always just thinking, oh, that's how I do that. Jesus is just a life hack. He just gives us tips on how to get the most out of life. That's not Jesus. That's not why he came. That's not the nature of the temptation. And if that's all we look at Jesus as, is as a way to be a better person, then we are in 
the same danger of the Pharisees of wanting to be like Jesus, but not wanting Jesus. So, Chad, are you saying that we shouldn't memorize Scripture? People that love William Shakespeare don't have to be told, you need to memorize Shakespeare. They just memorize Shakespeare because love compels them. Those who love Jesus will hang on his every word. They, they will find that love for Christ compels them toward the discipline. And I say discipline because it becomes something like exercise of memorizing Scripture, which may be the, the single most fruitful Christian discipline in this life. Memorizing Scripture, I believe, is the most fruitful Christian discipline in this life. You say, well, Chad, I thought you just said don't memorize it. It's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to confuse us all. How am I doing? <laughs> the reality for us is that we need Scripture, but if we think I can just memorize this and it reduces our dependence on Jesus, then we're using it wrongly. And we'll have the same heart as that of the Pharisees. But if you will allow this to be how you draw near to Jesus, how you say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to think about you more today. I want to be mindful of you today. And then you come to the scriptures and begin to meditate and memorize passages of scripture. Then all of a sudden you find yourself being ushered into the presence of Christ worshiping the Father, being filled with the Spirit in moments of your own temptation, of being enticed toward wrong behavior. But when we do this just to be like Christ, we become less and less like Him. The old way was through the Red Sea and the Jordan River. The, the old way made new is through the one who went down into the Jordan, even as John the Baptist was resisted. The old way Things have disappeared on me up here. I'm so sorry. The old way was through the wilderness and through their own trials and difficulties, but the new way is that Christ went through the wilderness for me. You see, that's the reality that Jesus is bringing in is what he has done for us. And yes, we are called to follow in his steps, so we will be baptized as believers. We'll go down into the water just as he did. But when we go down in the water, we aren't passing through the water. Instead, we're coming down in the water and we're saying, there's one who passed through death for me. And I've been united with him in his death. Therefore, I've been raised with him in new life. So it's no longer a baptism that I've got to walk. One walked for me. His name is Jesus. We look at the wilderness experience and we see one who resisted every temptation that we will face in this life. Every temptation. There's not one temptation you're going to face in this life that Jesus has not fully tasted of. You say, but Jesus wasn't married. How can he know the temptation that I went through? Jesus has tasted of every temptation yet without sin. That's what the scripture says. And so he knows the depth of your temptation regardless of the specifics, and he went through faithfully. So now we can show up in this life saying, greater is he who is within me than he is within the world. We can show up in this life now in temptation to know that the one who is in me is able to be faithful in this moment. The one who is in me is able to see the way out that Paul describes and take it to stay off of the road that leads to wickedness. That's Jesus Jesus showing us that there's a new way and it's all pointing to him. He's the new way. But then secondly, we see this, the new truth. The old truth made new. Just as Moses went up on the mountain 
So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, what we read is this. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, When Moses ascended the mountain, he went alone. He received the law, including the Ten Commandments, and then brought them down to the people. But Jesus, in contrast, invites his followers up and teaches them directly. Rather than setting aside the Old Testament, including the law of Moses, Jesus plainly states in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law and prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And fulfill he did. Matthew takes great care to show how there are repeated prophecies from the prophets and from the book of the law and the Psalms that are fulfilled in Christ. He quotes it again and again and again and again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. Yet the old is made new as Jesus repeatedly says here in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Number one, this points to a divine authority. I mean, think about the audacity. Because what he's saying, you've heard it said. Well, what they've heard said was the Bible was the Old Testament. He's going to quote, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, yeah, that, God said that. that. That's God speaking to us. And then he says, but I tell you, it's like, whoa, only God can modify what God said. That's a claim of divinity. I mean, only God, only God with us, only Emmanuel could get up in front of the people and say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. That's divine authority, and it's right there in the pages of Scripture. To those other world religions that would look and say, yeah, but Jesus doesn't say that he's God. He says it right here, plain as day, in front of us, and we would do well to heed his words. Jesus does not lessen the standard of God. It's not like, you know, that was pretty harsh. I'm going to let you off the hook. No, he intensifies it. I mean, look as he goes through here in verse 21. It says, God's standard of do not murder. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And then, which is one of the Ten Commandments, he intensifies it by saying, but I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to the judgment. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, God's standard of do not commit adultery. Again, one of the Ten Commandments is upheld, but it's intensified by Jesus when he says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, God's standard of love your neighbor is upheld, but intensified by Jesus when he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. The old truths of the Old Testament are made new in ways that uphold. They don't, they don't break, they don't change. They uphold and they get to the heart. They go right for the heart of each of these commands. They help us see the spirit of the law. I learned a painful lesson last year in Lake Charles, a lesson about laws and insurance and hurricanes. In September of 2020, Hurricane Laura, one of the top five hurricanes to hit the United States, hit Lake Charles, resulting in thousands of dollars of damage on our home and many others. I contacted my insurance company. I filed a claim and went through the process. Now, like you, I had a hurricane or a named storm deductible to meet, and meet it I did. The attorney general then made a visit to Louisiana and he reminded all Lake Charles residents that the law prohibits insurance companies from charging an insured homeowner more than one hurricane deductible in the same season. 
That was helpful information because just a month later, Hurricane Delta would hit Lake Charles, resulting in additional damage to our home, resulting in an additional insurance claim. This is where it gets good. The agent says, as a reminder, you have a deductible to meet, to which I, informed by the attorney general, say, uh-uh-uh, I already met my hurricane deductible, so you can't charge me another hurricane deductible. Oh, no, sir. We would never charge you a second hurricane deductible in the same hurricane season. This is your peril deductible. <laughs> my, my peril was caused by a name hurricane. Yes, sir. So that's a hurricane claim. Oh, sir, we would never charge you a second hurricane. The loop began. The peril deductible was the exact amount as my hurricane deductible. Lesson learned. Now, here's the point of sharing that story. I don't think the reason that the Louisiana legislature passed a law intending to protect homeowners from having to pay a hurricane deductible twice in one hurricane season was so that insurance companies would create a peril deductible. I don't think that's why they wrote that law. And in the same way, God did not forbid murder so that his people would simply fester with anger and hatred toward one another, always longing to kill someone or see them killed, but never acting on those feelings. God did not forbid adultery so that his people would simply be filled with lust upon spouses of friends and family, fantasizing about sexual involvement, but never actually doing it. Our view of the law is made new in Christ. No longer do I simply read, do not commit adultery as a firm line in this life not to cross. But in Christ, I see that God's good instruction was intended to free me from lust. I wasn't to have, not only not act in this way, I wasn't to think in this way. I wasn't to feel in this way. I wasn't, my mind wasn't supposed to be oriented toward that line of thinking. But bound in the bonds of sinful chains, I was unable to resist lust. Finding myself guilty, according to Christ, of adultery, I had broken the spirit of the law, of that which was written. But what Jesus is describing as the heart or the spirit of the law is exactly, I mean, think about this, it's exactly the life I want. I, I do want that life. It's not that Jesus is establishing some bar that I'm like, oh, really? You know, like, uh, gosh, that's just, that's so high. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. And, I, you know, just kind of get through this life. I would love a life free of lust. That sounds like the good life. A life where my eyes are just purely locked in on my wife. And it, in the summer months, I'm not just like, oh, man, there's a lot of, a lot of her and a lot of her and a lot of her. And I'm not having to, 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 you know, constantly kind of bounce my eyes or give in to the temptation and to gaze on somebody else. I, I would love the life that Jesus is describing. And I know that there are countless men and women in this room right now who would say, you're right. You're right. I would love to no longer be tempted to look at pornography. I, I, would, I would love to no longer do things in private that I'm ashamed of. I, I, would, I would love that. That sounds amazing. So I want you to see the goodness of the law. I want you to see that Jesus is, is holding out to us the good life. 
Not some high bar that's like, oh, really? But yes, yes. And it's meant to cause our eyes to look up. The bar is high. It's so high that only Christ achieved it. And so our eyes are supposed to go up to the bar, not just look down at the ground, not just look in the mirror at how I'm failing, and to look up to Jesus, who alone is sufficient, who alone accomplished the law. And he says, I want to give you the good life. I came to set you free from the chains of sin. You're no longer bound to lustful thoughts and lustful actions and to unfaithfulness in your marriage relationships. You see, my insurance company made a decision that they were going to get a second deductible if there was a storm. The law was just an obstacle they had to figure out a way around while appearing to be following the actual law. If you have a heart of an insurance company, then just know you might fool me and you might fool the others around you, but Jesus sees you. He knows exactly how you are justifying your actions. Jesus confronts you today through his word and he calls you to repentance and faith. In Jesus, the old way is made new. In Jesus, the old truth is made new in chapter five. But then we turn and we see in chapter six that in Jesus, the old life is made new because he goes in chapter six away from the language of you have heard that it was written or, or it has been said to, oh, I tell you, to then just, just these in, in, imploring the people of what life is to look like. He begins to describe this life well lived. But, but if surface level obedience is all that you and I are after, if we're all like, you know, like, okay, I, I won't commit adultery. Like, that's, that's high enough for me. I just won't act on all those feelings. I, I, I won't murder, but I will be steeped in anger and hold unforgiveness towards somebody else. That, that, I'm content with that. If that's where we're at, if, if surface level obedience is all that we want in this life, then Jesus is warning us through his word that I see you and that is not the life that I have given you. Chapter six, verse one, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise you'll have no reward from your father in heaven. Verse five, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Verse 16, Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Verse 19, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 31, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will you drink or what will we wear for the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In, in summary, Jesus is saying that if surface level seen by others obedience is all that you and I are after, then we will be characterized by, I expect a brick in my name giving, that he uses words I've never heard in his prayers, that I'm 
not supposed to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway, I'm fasting. That life is all about retirement, saving and investing. And I'm sorry, I don't have time to give thanks today because I'm too worrying, too busy worrying about tomorrow worry. Jesus cuts through the shallow life and invites you into a deep life of substance in his word. He says, my kingdom, my people are about substance. They're about what is real. They go below the surface. I'm not just looking for people who are going to go through all of the right motions. I'm looking for people whose heart is given to me. People who, who pull out the checkbook and say, it's yours. And they sign a blank check and they give it to God. And they say, you spend me and everything about my life however you desire for your glory. He's looking for people who when money, when they get their paycheck, when it comes in and they get that stub, they hold it before the Lord, before the Lord and they say, Lord, it's yours. Every penny of it is yours. That's what lordship is. It's all his. He's looking for the type of people, and this is a warning that I heard from another pastor, that the longer that you pray on stage is the shorter you probably prayed in private. He's not looking for people who can get up here and pray for, and edge on for, all, you know, for hours after hours. He's looking for people who pray quite simply, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a short prayer. But that's the model prayer. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's not long, but it is meaningful. It is orienting. It, it changes your life when you really allow yourself to, to steep in that prayer and to pray that prayer, and then to live that prayer. So what? All of this movement, all of this newness of the kingdom, that, that's just like the old, except it's new in Christ, so now what? Well, Jesus guides us in this way, with an invitation, a warning, and an illustration. Turn with me to chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. For some, what strikes them about the words of Jesus are the words narrow and few. Such words go against the grain of our day of inclusion. But what should blow us away is that there's any gate. that there are any who would be allowed to enter the kingdom of God. Praise be to God that through Christ, a gate was installed and the inv invitation issued to enter through him. Instead of expecting that we should love all, we, that he should love all, we should expect that he would love none. Rather than expecting a large gate, we should expect a solid wall of separation between us and the holy God. But glory to God, there is a gate and unlike some borders, it is a gate open to people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they are entering the kingdom, will you? But he also gives us a warning. Jesus knows that the person, please hear me. This is my heart. I am speaking to you from my heart in this moment. And I'm speaking myself wanting to receive this word as a warning. That it is 
that the person most at risk of not entering the kingdom of God is the person, is not the person who is far off, but the person who's convinced they're already in the kingdom. But they're not. Hear these words of warning from Jesus, beginning in verse 15. Be on guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing that are inwardly ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Either every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name. And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Some of you in this very room are banking on a prayer you were guided in praying as a child in which you said, Lord, Lord. Some of you in this room today are banking on a cosmic scale to be present in heaven in which your good outweighs your bad. Some of you in this very room today are banking on the mercy of God without acknowledging the justice of God as if sins are swept under the rug rather than paid for on the tree. Jesus will not be fooled. He knows the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. He knows if you are a good tree or a bad tree. He knows if you are doing the will of his Father or not. He knows if you are his or you are not. To many who thought in this life, I'm of the kingdom, he will say on that day, depart from me, you lawbreakers. In the same breath that he announces a gate exists into the kingdom, he warns that few will enter and warns that many of those who will not enter never do so because they're convinced that they were already inside. But then he gives us an illustration, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. If ever an illustration from this past week illustrates that illustration of Christ, it's what happened outside of Miami this week. Of a building just in a moment, in the night, just crashing, just coming down. Because it wasn't built the way that it was supposed to be built. It wasn't on the rock to use the imagery from this passage, this warning of Jesus. It was built on the sand and it came 
crashing down in a moment. And Jesus warns that that is how, that is how this life goes. It won't be that you'll say, well, I think it's about to crash down. I think I'll go ahead and leave so I'll be in safety and security. No, it will catch you unaware. You'll be asleep. I mean, these are like the exact words of Jesus. Like a thief in the night, all of a sudden it comes crashing down. And so allow that illustration from the week, even as we pray today for those that are grieving the loss of loved ones and for the search that continues, allow that to illustrate the importance of building life right. Let that be a lasting reminder to us that if we don't build on the rock, it comes crashing down eventually. Maybe not today, maybe not even in 20 years. It might be 40 years later but the foundation will be shown. And there's only one foundation. In fact, it's the rock that the builders rejected. That's what the New Testament teaches is that the, the, the stone that they said, man, that's, that one doesn't work. They threw it away. That's the one that Jesus said, this is my rock. This is the cornerstone. This is the one that the whole house is gonna be built off of. And it's Jesus Christ. But in our brokenness, and I want us to look at the three circles again. This is something we're doing, but I want you to see how this applies in our life. That right now, as kingdom residents, we have been delivered from a world of brokenness. We, we have acknowledged that it's not God's design. We acknowledge that it's sin that got us there, and that it's only Jesus and Jesus alone who brings us back to God's design. But I want to apply this for just a moment with you. Sometimes, even after leaving brokenness, we return to it, to broken ways of living. We, we return to a way of living, of going back to where it's, I don't commit adultery. I just do it in my mind and in my heart. And Jesus is saying, I rescued you from that. And so what's the way back? Is it for me just to hop back over to God's design? No, the only way back to God's design is Jesus. So if you are locked right now in the throes of bondage to lustful thoughts and looking at pornography and all of these sexual deviations from God's design, I want you to know there is hope for you and his name is Jesus. And I don't say that tritely. I don't say that to say that there's no need for Christian counseling. I don't say that to say that addiction isn't a real thing. I say that on the ground of Jesus Christ. I say that to say that there's one who can grab you and bring you through maybe the long road of recovery out of a lifestyle of addiction. But if you just simply try to hop back on your own, you're gonna trade one addiction for another. That's how we do it. That's what we do. We clean up one part and dirty another, but only Jesus cleans within. So I invite you, trust Jesus today. And maybe you're in this room and you say, I already did, I already trusted Jesus. Then I encourage you to return to your first love. I encourage you to humble yourself yet again and say, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to, to you, I freely give. And Jesus, I acknowledge I have not been living in the good life that you have given for me. I've not been living that blessed and happy life that Psalm 119 spoke of, that Jesus then spoke of in the Beatitudes that he has given for you. So I invite you to stand in this moment. And some of you in this moment may need to just come and have a moment of surrender with the Lord by kneeling at these steps.
I encourage you, let this be a response time for all of us. Not just for the person that's looking for a new church home, not for the person that's maybe for the first time giving their life to Jesus, but for every person in this room, for this to be a moment of surrender, a fresh surrender to Jesus and to his kingdom and to his kingship in your life. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that in this moment, every one of us will will be freshly surrendered to you. That as we have seen the way, the truth, and the life, these old ways made new, we acknowledge today that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father. We don't get back to God's design apart from him. So Lord, may every one of us run to Jesus in this moment. You worship now and respond to his goodness.